All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of today's show for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors are Eurostar Gold Corp and Liberty Star Resources. Well, I'm very pleased to have with me once again Rick Rule. And uh, I'm not going to read Rick's bio because it is uh, already posted on the website at Voice America and also because we've read it several times before and also because most of you probably know Rick Rule by this time very well. So uh, I want to welcome Rick. It's good to have you back. Always nice to be with you. Thanks. Thank you. And I understand you just came from the Freedom Fest. Uh, I believe you were there, right? I was. I was. It was a wonderful conference, as you know. And I heard your friend uh, Doug Casey lit up a cigar on the stage. Shame on him. He uh, he has a habit of attempting to flout rules. For the first time in sort of, um, I don't know, 10 years that I've seen it, there was a venue that was uh, uh, competent but inconsiderate enough to catch him in the act. <laughs> so he was shut down. Well, I remember uh, sitting with him out in Cafayate in in Arizona uh, uh, and down in Argentina there with him one evening, and he he does like to light them up and uh, enjoy them. And out there, nobody seemed to bother him, which I suppose is maybe one of the reasons he likes to go to Argentina. Um, I'd like to start out by asking you a question you once asked me as a member of a panel discussion, and that is this. Are we in a, a cyclical or a secular bear market in your view, or do you care? Well, on one hand, I don't care in the context of resources, and I think that you need to define what market you're involved in. I think that we are in a uh, secular bear market in Western economies, uh, I think, as I think you think, that for a couple generations, people in North America and Europe have um, consumed more than they've produced, and they've financed that by borrowing, and I think you need to liquidate uh, the excesses with regards to what I particularly do, which is the resource sector, I think we're in a cyclical decline in a secular bull market. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there, we face very sets of cir- varying sets of circumstances depending on the market that we're referring to. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and you would say that not just for precious metals, but for stuff in general. Jimmy Rogers yes, raw materials, I, I fund, for example, for stuff in general. With the caveat, of course, that the Western nations are still, despite the very rapid growth of emerging markets, the world's mouth, and the slowdown in Western economies will, of course, slow down the increase in demand for energy and base metals. But in the context of both energy and base metals, I think we have supply constraints in the longer term that will support markets despite the Western nations' declines or relative declines. Hmm. Well, the last time we talked to you, uh, your friend uh, 
Doug Casey was on with you, and I believe both of you had have sort of turned a, a little bit bullish at least. And I guess it makes some sense if you think that we're in a cyclical decline within a secular bull for the commodities, for the stuff. So these kind of markets can offer great opportunities, I suppose, and you have been a person that's done very, very well by recognizing and buying at times when nobody else wanted to buy. I mean, I, I'm the worst at that. I must say that when I, I just tend to reflect the feelings of a market, and I guess most people do. How do you? How are you able to, you know, not let the feelings, the gut feelings that you get in a in a bear market, dominate your decision making? That's a great question, Jay. It has to do with a very vicious lesson I learned that I was I learned when I was fairly young. In my twenties, I made a lot of money in the oil and gas business. That was the bull market of the seventies. Mm-hmm. And as many young and some older people do, I confused a bull market with brains. <laughs> and I thought the money that was associated with the money I made during a, a bull market was a consequence of my competence. When the market turned down in the early nineteen eighties, I gave it all back plus some. Mm-hmm. Uh, that lesson taught me that resource markets are cyclical and capital intensive. And if you aren't a contrarian in natural resource-based businesses, you're going to be a victim of those businesses. Mm-hmm. The lessons that I learned, mercifully, I learned when I was very young, and they were, um, how would you say, painful enough lessons that they have stuck with me. One of our jokes internally is that we trade uh, uh, customers scar tissue for fees, which is a pretty good deal from their point of view. <laughs> You know, further to that discussion, Jay, uh, we were looking back at the results of some private partnerships that we have originated, managed, and, and uh, you know, liquidated and syndicated for years. And it's interesting. There's a 100% correlation between the money that we raised and deployed in bad markets and exceptional success, and a similar correlation between money that we raised in good markets and less success, mm-hmm. uh, which at least from our point of view shows, and at least from our style, that the money that we deploy in very bad markets, like the 1998 to 2002 market, which was Mm -hmm. the worst junior resource market in living memory, Mm -hmm. uh, that coincided with the best best investment performance that we've ever delivered. Mm -hmm. Um, So it may not be true for the market overall, but it's certainly true for people who follow my own investing style. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly true for people who have money left at those at those bottoms, and that's a, that's a difficult part of it. I mean, I can look at my own portfolio after two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and it and and I have an idea that you were probably just just uh, I'm saying this on the basis of some comments you made at some of the shows that that I've listened to you speak at. You were probably exiting while everybody else was licking their chops and and wanting to get into these things because you know it's the frenzy at the top, right? Everybody. Everybody feels like jumping in, um, and it, it, well, it, to hind, me, it, hindsight's always twenty twenty. And yeah. of course, now I wish I'd sold a little bit more at two thousand ten. Right. But it helps to have an absolute sense of what these things are worth, mm-hmm. and, and use the market as a facility for buying and selling pieces of businesses, mm-hmm. rather than using the market as a source of information. Mm-hmm. When the market appeared to us to be overvaluing assets relative to what we thought they were worth. You try and have the discipline to be a seller. Of course, it's difficult because the valuations are going up every day. Yep. Greed kicks in. Yep. Similarly, in periods of time where the market appears to be valuing assets at 50% or less of what you're valuing assets for, 
uh, it makes sense if you have the courage to be a buyer. Uh, because your overall net asset values are dropping, of course, again, it's difficult to take advantage of the bargains because you are naturally feeling a little uncomfortable with the overall direction of the market and your aggregate performance relative to benchmarks that you've established for yourself. But still, it's something that you have to do. Yeah, so how do you how do you look at a uh, at a resource stock? Do you look at present value cash flows um for ongoing or, or ongoing uh, businesses? We do, and you know, with uh of prelim- of particular importance, I'm sorry, right now, uh the companies that have really been smashed are the companies that are uh pre-production where the financing to go into production hasn't been 100% arranged. In the precious metal sector in particular, we are seeing companies with the greatest discounts uh, of enterprise value to net asset value uh, as determined by the preliminary economic assessment Mm -hmm. that we have ever seen. And we are also seeing uh, the greatest arbitrage between preliminary economic assessment and bankable feasibility study that we've ever seen. Mm. So, yes, we do net asset value calculations, and we do them based on a, uh, you know several different um, commodity price deck parameters and several different interest rate scenarios. Mm-hmm. But if you keep the assumptions consistent over time, these are certainly the deepest development stage uh, asset discounts that we've seen in 30 years of measuring things, these things. That's that's fascinating. No wonder you've turned a bit bullish. Um, uh, yeah, that's 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 uh, that's very interesting. Well, one thing I do know is that the the uh, the senior mining companies, the gold companies, profits have been very strong since 2008, when the real price of gold has risen. As I like to remind my subscribers, very dramatically, I like to measure the an ounce of gold, what it will buy of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. And in 2008, an ounce of gold would have purchased, before Lehman Brothers, would have purchased only about 17% of the fund. It grew to 44% by March of 2009, fell back to about 30%, and more recently with the European crisis, an ounce of gold would have purchased 485 or 49% of the fund. It's down a bit now with the happy talk coming out of Bernanke and elsewhere. But, but the profits of the gold mining companies have reflected this real price of gold uh, relative to the cost of getting it out of the ground, relative to you know, copper and energy and so forth. Why do you think the gold shares are performing so miserably? Because we've seen a real compression in the P.E. ratios of the senior producers. Jay, that's a really interesting question. I I think if you go, if you look backwards for a while, there were several factors. In the first instance, in the period um, 2000 to 2010, I would argue that the price of the gold shares escalated faster than the price of gold, at least Mm -hmm. the price of gold shares relative to their cash flows. Mm -hmm. The second factor was, of course, the emergence of bullion proxy equity products like the Spot Physical Gold Trust and the Mm -hmm. gold ETFs, or the bullion ETFs, Mm -hmm. which allowed people through their uh, securities accounts and in their IRAs to by physical or, or physical bullion proxies as opposed to getting their gold leverage through the gold shares, which they had had, had to do for the prior decades. Mm-hmm. The third reason was that on a backwards-looking basis for the first part of the last decade, the corporate performance of the senior gold mining industries relative to the increased price of gold was terrible. The price of the stuff they were producing was going up, but rather than showing increasing cash flow per share, 
they were issuing more shares as their mm-hmm. equity prices went up. So mm-hmm. they were being less efficient at generating cash out of their assets than one, of, than, that one would have hoped, at the same time that they were diluting our ownership of those mm-hmm. assets. Mm-hmm. What's interesting now is that investor disgust, or at least investor apathy, uh, is manifest at the same time that the reasons that created the underperformance have gone away. If you look at those same sets of circumstances again, uh, obviously you can't argue any longer that the gold shares have outpaced the bullion because there's a sort of a 50% differential relative Mm -hmm. to 2010. The other thing is, of course, that the relative attraction of the ETFs and products like the the spot physical gold relative to the gold stocks is eroded by bullion's overperformance. But the most important reason that somebody needs to look at the gold shares again is that really in the last 18 months or two years, the corporate performance, particularly of the major and intermediate gold producers, has been spectacular relative to their performance 10 years before. Mm -hmm. The equity that they raised uh, has gone into the ground, not always with good effect, but often with good effect, and they are finally beginning to realize the cash flow that we had hoped they would have for the last 10 years as a consequence of increasing gold prices. If you strip away all the accounting niceties, mm-hmm. I use the phrase niceties very loosely, and you look merely at cash at beginning of period and cash at end of period, if you take yourself, Jay, back to your days as a banker, uh, what you will see is the cash accretion on a quarter-by-quarter basis, even after sustaining capital investments and amortized capital, uh, these companies are starting to generate really tremendous amounts of cash. Mm-hmm. And in the first instance, generating tremendous amounts of cash is a very good thing, but it begets two important things. One is the ability to grow production internally, right. and the second is the ability to people light and return some of the cash to its owners by way of either share buybacks or dividends. So I think we're in a virtuous circle with regards to the gold stocks mm-hmm. that has been uh, misunderstood and, in fact, understated by the market. Mm-hmm. Do you think the, the senior guys are getting better now than uh, more successful in their exploration efforts, whereas, whereas before they were paying outrageous prices, it seems, sometimes for ounces in the ground from, from junior exploration companies? Well, certainly... The market leadership has changed. Mm -hmm. The senior gold companies were being asked by Wall Street to exhibit leverage to gold, which ironically requires them to be marginal. (laughs) And for some number of years, they succeeded dramatically in being marginal. I think they've smartened up, and they're looking at acquisitions that are financially accretive. Mm -hmm. And I think this is an important part for your listeners. Uh, Leadership in the gold markets will no longer be with the institutional darlings, the leverage to gold crowd. The institutions are still suffering disintermediation. They're suffering redemptions. And so you won't see stocks lead in the future, the same type of stocks lead in the future that have led in the past. Leadership now will come from the gold mining industry in the form of acquisitions of projects and companies that are financially accretive. The emphasis won't be on the large, low-grade deposits that are very expensive to build and have low internal rates of return but high price leverage to gold. In this new market, the market leadership will be by industry takeovers, and it will be projects that have decent grade, lower cash costs, better margins, higher internal rates of return, and shorter payback periods. It's a very important thing for your listeners to consider in the context of constructing their own gold portfolios. Times have changed. 
You know, indeed, I and I think that uh, at this point in time, uh, with so many little juniors that are needing to raise capital to put money in the ground, there's going to be, I believe, there's going to be a huge number of dead bodies out on the, uh, out over the North American and out over the landscape in general around the world. Would you agree with that? Well, you know, Jay, we've talked about this, and of course I agree. Markets are supposed to work. Mm-hmm. There are supposed to be market clearing events. Uh, our mutual friend, John Kaiser, pointed out seven or eight weeks ago that 50% of the companies on the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture Exchange, the TSXV, share three common characteristics. They're selling uh, for less than 25 cents a share. In other words, they're true penny dreadfuls. Mm-hmm. Um, they are selling substantially below 50% of their previous 52-week highs, mm-hmm. and they have less than six months' worth of working capital. Mm. That means that half the exchange is going to have to come back to the market for funding in a market that, by and large, does not exist. Um, this is a very healthy and very cathartic event. Yes. Uh, it is unfortunate that a whole new class of investors came into this market and took up the market, the good, the bad, and the ugly, without any sort of qualitative analysis. The good news is that those same investors are now capitulating and coming out of the market and selling down their good stocks with their bad stocks. And people who are willing to study and take the time and go through the work will, for the next two or three years, um, I think, get some extraordinary bargains. Now, Mm -hmm. One of the things that's going to happen as a consequence of the weight of a declining market is even as the better juniors begin to base out and head up, it'll still feel like we're in a bear market because the vast majority of companies in the market are not among the better ones. And they will continue to trend trend down to their intrinsic value, which is zero. But there's no particular reason why people who, as an example, take the time to educate themselves by listening to your show – burden themselves with the worst companies, paying attention to some qualitative differentials certainly will improve your performance and will make you the type of investor who profits during the bad times as opposed to is punished during the bad times. Yeah, it's it's a market that is really, um, it's really a gambling casino in a way. You know, Rick, I was a company on my list, Gold Quest. It was selling at seven cents a share, and I said, "Oh my gosh, what am I doing with this thing?" <laughs> and they go out and make a discovery, and now the second and third holes are making are, are looking like it's probably a flat bearing uh, or somewhat flat bearing deposit that that's, that could be a monster. It looks more and more promising. Uh, it looks more promising than it did. It looks like it could be really big, and that stock I looked today was at a dollar two. So from seven cents to a dollar two, it's not bad. But honestly, that's one of about fifty. You know, I mean, if that's that's probably a generous ratio. Uh, it's less than that. Now, I know one of your favorite ways to play the this sector is through the project generator, and I know you're not allowed to, t- to mention any names, but there's some companies that I happen to know you're invested in, and, and that, honestly, folks, uh, listeners out there, when Rick Rule buys into something, when the Rick Rule Trust or, or uh, people that he's associated with are buying things, uh, that makes me take some notice because, Rick, um, I do... I do follow you, and I know that uh, you've been very successful, so we want to we follow the successful jockeys. And so your project generator model, though, is probably still the best way to play this market, wouldn't you say so, for most, for most individuals? Statistically, it's absolutely the best way to participate in the exploration business. For people who have 
the courage and the financial wherewithal to participate in exploration. And by the way, your point with regards to GoldQuest brings up two very, very, very interesting facts in this market. The first is, as bad as this market is, it rewards a good discovery. Mm -hmm. GoldQuest is one example. Africa Oil is another example. Uh, today's example was Reservoir Minerals. To the extent that the market sees something that looks like a really nice, legitimate discovery, despite the fact that the overall tone of the market is poor, the market can and will respond very, very, very aggressively to potential world-scale discoveries. The second point, Jay, is a bit more subtle, but it's something else that your listeners should consider. We have been funding exploration now generously for more than 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's how long it takes. The money that has gone into the junior sector in exploration has allowed a higher quality of uh, geoscientist, geologist, engineer, mm -hmm. geophysicist to come into the sector. That doesn't suggest that all of the junior companies are populated by competent managements, far, <laughs> far from it. But there's a much greater population of very good geoscientists involved in junior company exploration, and we have funded them well for 10 years. The point of this is that we are now coming into a discovery cycle, mm -hmm. just as the market outlook is the bleakest, mm -hmm. the outlook for discoveries is the strongest. You will remember, Jay, because you were around. In the resource market that we had in the 1970s, we began to fund exploration in earnest in 1974, 1975. Mm -hmm. But the true discovery cycle didn't occur till the early part of the 1980s, after the resource markets had turned low. Right. It took seven, eight, ten years of concerted exploration for the great discovery boom, as an example, of along the Carlin and Battle Mountain trends to occur. Sure. We're coming into that same period now. We funded exploration, and we funded it well for 10 years, and we funded an increasingly competent team of uh, earth scientists. And, and just, as the, uh, just as the market tenor of the, junior, uh, of the juniors uh, gets worse and worse and worse, I suspect that the velocity of discovery will get better and better and better. <laughs> that's that's really uh, really interesting. Then, how would you compare though the '70s with now? This is a bigger event, isn't it? A bigger bull market. Um, it, it is. It is a bigger bull market. It's set against even greater general market uh, um, calamity. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I look at the set of circumstances, and I, I, I need to caution your listeners, Jay, that I am not an economist. I'm a mm -hmm. I'm a credit analyst, really. I'm a Shylock. Um, but when I look at the big, pe big picture, I think the big picture is more calamitous than it was in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And ironically, I think as a consequence of globalization and changing leadership in the world's financial structure, that the outlook for resources is better than it was in the 70s. And so although there was a strong outperformance by resources relative to the broad economy in the 70s, I think the uh, the uh, dichotomy, the outperformance, will be even greater uh, in this market. Mm -hmm. Well, where do you stand with respect to? I mean, I know you said you're not an economist, but and I know you're a credit analyst and a, and a darn good one. But you must have some sense, some personal view of this global credit mess that we're in. I mean, I've had people like Robert Prechter on the show, and of course, he's a doomsday deflationist. But there, but or sort of mainstream economists that are talking about this being, you know, the, the debt 
to to income globally being so so great that that we have to have an awful lot more contraction there has to be an awful lot more probably baby being thrown babies being thrown out with the bathwater which is what i i know gets you excited because you can start to look to buy you know to find some real bargains but but if we continue to have a credit deflation through the next number of years can we see a bull market in commodities during that time i i think we can uh, I, I think I, I think we have a lot of systemic risks in markets as a consequence of what you describe. Uh, I think between the on-balance sheet liabilities of the collective uh, and the off-balance sheet liabilities, you know, in effect the promises, the unfunded mandates, uh, that we are on an unsustainable trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, it is interesting that there are a whole bunch of countries in the world that are on a different trajectory. I don't think it's because they're smarter than us. I think it's because they were frozen out of the credit markets. Mm-hmm. The really nice thing that happened for a whole bunch of the world was in things like the tequila markets where Mexico threatened to go broke or the vodka markets. It's interesting how they always bring liquor into play, <laughs> uh, You know where the Russians were uh, threatening to go broke or the Asian contagion. Mm-hmm. is that capital markets began to close to emerging and frontier market bar- borrowers. Mm-hmm. As a consequence, you know, beginning in the 1990s, uh, as those economies began to grow, they began to grow unconstrained by debts. And what was contra- constrained was their social expenditure. Those constraints didn't exist for us. So we're in an odd place now where the weak are suddenly relatively strong and the strong are suddenly relatively weak. What's important in the context of resource markets, and this is very important for your listeners to understand, is that the growth in resource markets are driven by increasing liquidity at the very bottom of the demographic pyramid. Hmm. Those of your listeners who travel to emerging third, third world countries over the last 30 years will notice a fairly dramatic increase in living standards in those countries. Mm-hmm. I do it. Mm-hmm. And what you notice is that at the bottom of the pyramid, paraphrased, if you will, by Deng Xiaoping when he said to become rich is glorious, mm-hmm. there have been little amounts of added freedom in those countries which have added to large amounts uh, of uh, added income. And when people at the bottom of the demographic pyramid add to their income, the things that give them utility, the things that they buy, are made of stuff. You and I already have too much stuff. Right. So when we get more money, we buy services or we buy an iPod and mm-hmm. load it with some you know, music for kids or grandkids or something like that. But very poor people, when they get more money, they may take their diet from 1,600 calories to 2,500 calories. They may buy a, uh, I don't know, a refrigerator or an air conditioner if they live on the equator. The point is that... The increased incomes at the bottom of the demographic pyramid lead to increased, dramatically increased consumption of commodities per capita spread over literally billions of capita. So it is possible still to continue to decouple the resource economy mm-hmm. from the broad economy. Mm-hmm. Well, good. That's a very good point, Rick, because uh, it, it really is true. Disproportionately, the developing countries need more stuff, no doubt about it. Speaking of stuff, and energy, of course, is one of the biggest stuff items in the Rogers Raw Materials Fund and other funds. It is uh, probably the most important commodity, one of the most, after you get past water, I suppose. But if you... With respect to energy, I know that one of the reasons you've turned bullish, in addition to the fact that there's a lot of good value out there in individual companies, but from 
uh, a, a, um, a sector point of view, the oil and gas industry and the technologies that now allow us to to exploit those resources that are vast but were uneconomic to develop in the past. How big is this for America, the ability to take out that oil and gas uh, using fracking and horizontal drilling? I think this is a game changer for us. I mean, not a permanent game changer, Mm -hmm. but I certainly never believed in my lifetime that we would see net increases in U.S. oil production. And seven years ago, Jay, had you told me on this show that the United States might threaten to be a natural gas exporter, Mm -hmm. and I would have uh, questioned what liquid you were putting in with your soda at night. Mm -hmm. You know, just uh, an impossibility. But the conjunction of these three technologies and the ability to, in effect, manufacture reservoirs uh, in very tight shales is uh, a game changer for us. It's very, very, very important. I think it has the ability to markedly lower uh, the U.S. trade deficit. I think it has the ability to generate uh, a lot of high-paying direct jobs in the energy business at the same time that it encourages the, manufacturer, the, the manufacturers, particularly in the chemical business, to consider leaving productive capacity in the United States as opposed to transferring it to um, other uh, mm-hmm. supposedly cheaper jurisdictions with regards to energy. Mm-hmm. It's important to remember that despite all of the challenges that the United States currently faces, at least with regards to the energy business, the United States has some spectacular advantages. In the first instance, we have private ownership of subsurface mineral rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the best system of petroleum land tenor in the world. Mm-hmm. The second thing that we have is the best concentration of earth scientists with regards to sedimentary rocks, oil and gas earth scientists in the world. That isn't to belabel the Canadian concentration, but ours is a much larger market. Mm-hmm. The third thing that we have is the best infrastructure in the world for the transportation and storage of oil and gas. So although in the context of gas, even with these technologies, we are higher cost producers than places like the northwest shelf of Australia or Qatar or the Persian Gulf, we have the ability to ship the gas and store the gas and deliver the gas reliably to world markets. So despite the challenges that we face in a country and despite the insane politics that burdens all Americans, in the context of the energy business, we have durable, competitive advantage against the whole rest of the world in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. Now, there are uh, ways that, I guess, mutual funds or ways that, that the individual can play this market, that people don't, don't have the ability to track individual companies. Of course, we can all buy the big-name companies. We, those are easy, but are there some funds out there that, that people can tap into? Well, I'm I'm not allowed to name specific names. Yeah. Um, but I would suggest that you look for a fund manager or a fund management group that has been in the business for a li- very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, y- you look for a fund manager and a fund management group that has been through cycles. Um, you know, in, in the market for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, past isn't always prologue, but uh, having your money managed by a team that has managed it through all the cycles. I think is an important thing to do. And it's important for investors to pay attention to track record. Sure. Not just the fund's track record, but the specific manager's track record. 
some people do things better than other people, and it's important to trust buddy, trust your money with people who are of that ilk, who are the really star, real star performers. Rick, we of course hear a lot of complaints uh, from the environmentalists in the uh, in this uh, fracking business. How much uh, of a concern should that be? I mean, I'm asking somebody who is in the. I realize that you're in this business, so I'm not asking an environmentalist, but but there could be some real concerns here, no? Certainly the industry should have done a better job for the last hundred years in cementing wells. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the water pollution that the environmentalists now are ascribed to fracking are a consequence of oil and gas activities from the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s mm. and 60s where wells were improperly cemented and saltwater-producing aquifers ran up the wellbore into fresh water. The ability for this industry to have a frack two miles below the Earth's surface that mm-hmm. exported saltwater into a freshwater aquifer two miles above where the frack took place mm. is an absolute non-issue. What the industry does have to do a better job of right now is frack water and wastewater management. Mm-hmm. Too many drilling operators use uh, lined pits in the earth. When technologies are available, those Poseidon technology is an example, uh, to use above-ground, self-contained water storage systems for frack water and flowback water. And in fact, now, systems exist where... And this fracking can use a lot of water, Jay, 3 million mm-hmm. gallons, 4 million gallons. Yeah. So when you uh, force this water into the reservoir to fracture it and then flow it back, systems exist now to take that water, uh, clean the water up enough, retreat it, and use it again and again and again. And given that a lot of these uh, horizontal wells are drilled from se- central well pods so that you're dr- drilling between six and ten wells from one location, Mm -hmm. the ability to use this water again and again and again and then store it and transport it back off-site is something that the industry is going to have to do a lot more of. It's ironic that the environmental communities' attacks on the industry uh, are attacked on the part of the industry that doesn't provide much of a risk. Well, the activities of the industry that do constitute an environmental risk uh, are perhaps because the environmental community doesn't know enough to know what to criticize, Mm -hmm. have gone completely uncriticized. Mm -hmm. Well, let's hope we get it fixed because we we need a balance, obviously, between uh, environmental concerns. We need clean water for sure. Uh, But at the same time, you know, it seems to be so often in this whole issue of environmental versus corporate uh, versus mining and, and uh, resource production that seems to be uh, you know emotionally charged and not always uh, not always based on rational thought uh, one more question I wanted to ask you before we uh, before we conclude our discussion today you mentioned management what is it that you look for management in management most of all this is very important Jay you look for a track record of prior success But it's important that you look for a track record of prior success that is in a task that is very similar to the task that these people are involved in now. Let's say in the mining business, if somebody is leading an exploration company and they are looking for gold in young tertiary volcanic rocks in Peru, you want somebody whose prior success 
was looking for gold in tertiary environments in Spanish-speaking, you know, volcanoes. If you find somebody who was successful operating a mine in French-speaking Quebec, in Archean or Proterozoic rocks, you know, very old rocks, Mm -hmm. those skill sets aren't the same as the skill sets that are going to be uh, important in an exploration business in a Spanish-speaking company. Mm-hmm. So you look for for people that have proven skill sets that are germane to the task at hand, and mm-hmm. that is the greatest determinant of uh, investment success in the small, smaller, more speculative companies. Well, that, that's certainly good advice, no doubt about that. What about ownership? Uh, I, I, one of the things I like to look for are, are, is a management whose interests and whose interests are aligned with mine as a shareholder. I'm sure that's one that you agree with. It couldn't be more true. Our, our, our friend Doug Casey told me 20 years ago there's no sense trusting a, trusting a management team that isn't going to get rich making us rich. Yeah. Um, if you are in business with people who are employees of yours as opposed to being partners of yours, they will not strive as hard. There's no interest like self-interest. No, no doubt about that. Well, we are out of time. Again, it always goes so fast when you're on. I thank you very much, Rick, for coming on with us. Tell our listeners uh, you do write things from time to time. Where can they keep up with, with what you're thinking and talking about? We do. They can sign up on our website, which is www.sprottglobal.com. That's S-P-R-O-T-T-G-L-O-B-A-L.com, sprottglobal.com, or call us at 800 477 7853. That's 1-800-477-7853. Thank you very much, Rick. Thanks for being with us again, and always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for your your excellent advice and wisdom, and I look forward to doing it again sometime in the not-too-distant future. My pleasure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you very much. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back after the break. I've got some ideas. I'm going to talk about GoldQuest and some other uh, things that I've talked about in my own newsletter this past weekend, so don't go away. I'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I really enjoyed that discussion with Rick Rule. We had some technical difficulties earlier on with Bill Lagner, and my apologies to Bill and to all you listeners out there. Uh, for that difficulty, um, I don't know. I mean, we, uh, we're uh, trying to upgrade our system, and sometimes we seem to have uh, be taking a step backwards in that process from time to time. But in any event, uh, trusting that you're hearing me now going back to uh, a more antiquated system seems to work better at times. Well, we have um, one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, in this segment. We do not have a guest on here, so I wanted to talk a little bit about GoldQuest. I mentioned uh, Rick Rule uh, GoldQuest. Uh, it's a company that trades in the Toronto Exchange under the symbol GQC. You can also buy it down here in the United States. At the start of this year, GoldQuest was selling at seven cents a share, and I decided to keep it on in my newsletter because they had a management team that had, uh, you know, very much as Rick Rule was suggesting, you want management teams that have skill sets to match what you're asking them to do. In this case, a management team that had put a small mining project into production in uh, the Dominican Republic in the past, uh, and they had a, a small deposit that could conceivably be put into production. It had a small asset. And so on that basis, I decided to uh, to hang on to the stock, even at $0.07. Cents. A miserable experience. Well, the stock earlier today was selling at $1.02, from $0.07 cents to $1.02. And I do believe this stock has the potential to go to much higher levels, depending on what is discovered, but they did uh, on the strength of the first drill hole, 231 meters, uh, grading 2.4 grams of gold and with lots of copper. I'm, I'm thinking something like a half a percent or so copper after you get down below the surface level a little ways. Uh, a really gangbuster hole, very, very big hole, 231 meters with those kind of grades of gold. And then they uh, dr- drilled two more holes that uh, are angle holes uh, to try to get a sense of the geometry of this uh, of this mineralization, and while we don't have the values yet from those two additional holes, what we do know uh, is that the geometry is suggesting that this structure that hosts this gold and copper is relatively flat lying. That is, it isn't vertical, and that is so important because it is possible sometimes, and this is why you want to be careful when you look at a single drill hole. It's possible sometimes to drill down into a vertical structure, especially if it's a vertical drill hole, drill straight down into it. And if it goes to great depths, well, that's not the same as if you have a near-surface flat-lying deposit. So the magnitude of this, and we should be getting some assays in the not-too-distant future, if those numbers are anything like the 231 meters of 2.4 grams, I think this stock could move instantly to much higher levels. Of course, you never know for sure the whole... The whole market is subject to macro forces, and I do believe that one of the problems that we're facing, uh, in addition to some of the some of the things that Rick Rule said, I think one of the problems that we are facing is that we are in a deflating world. We are in a in a, in a world in which the credit has been massive. Uh, it cannot 
it cannot continue to grow because there's no income to service that debt. And so I think what is part of what's happening is that mining companies, resource companies, have gotten taken down in part because the because of just a, a liquidity um, and insolvency problem around the world that is really uh, sort of dominating many uh, many things. And I think you know Rick had some other very good ideas about why the resource sector uh, has gotten hit and. Really some, some encouraging, uh, ideas from Rick though, in that here we are after 10 years, we're starting to see some major discoveries. We're starting to see some big things happening at the very time that the share market is, has taken these companies' shares down much lower. I mean, it's very common, uh, among the companies that I track on my list. I'm seeing this happen, uh, with many of them where they might have been selling at two or three dollars a few years ago and now they've, their projects have progressed. Uh, to uh, feasibility or to preliminary economic study levels, and the share prices are cut in a third or a fourth of where they were two or three years ago. Well, um, clearly, we are moving into a period of time in which value is much easier to find, but it's not easy to buy when the market is still weak and when it looks vulnerable. Uh, people like Rick Rule, who have had a successful past, though, when when Rick starts to pay attention, and Doug Casey, who was on the show with Rick some time ago, uh, both of these gentlemen started to get bullish on uh, the bull, uh, on the uh, on the American equity market. Then I think you you do have to pay some attention to that, and uh, specifically more in the resource sector, I suppose. Now, on the other hand, uh, I do have a great deal of respect for Robert Prechter and his views and his uh, almost cataclysmic views on the downside. So I wish I could tell you exactly how I felt about this. I think that what you have to do uh, is look for companies that are cash flow positive, that can stay in business, that can grow organically, and if they can continue to grow their business, uh, their equity prices are much less important than their ability to continue to build value on their balance sheets and through their, uh, through their enterprises and through their, uh, through their work um, and their production. So my focus has constantly been and continues to be on companies that are in production, uh, that have great growth aspects, uh, potential, and there's a lot of them on my list like that. Now, another company I'd like to just talk briefly about before we go to a break here is Renaissance Gold. I talked about Renaissance Gold. It was my stock pick of the week last week in the newsletter. This is a project generator company, and as you heard Rick Rule say, statistically project generators uh, far and away are the best performers in the high-risk, high-return resource sector. And the reason for that is because little companies uh, really spend huge amounts of money to try to prove up a project. They have to go back to the equity markets, and especially at times like this when it's really difficult to raise capital in the equity markets, uh, the junior mining sector, the junior exploration guys are becoming very, very uh, very vulnerable. Well, Renaissance Gold is a company with a management that has been actively involved in uh, exploration, successful exploration in Nevada, uh, and they spun out one company, uh, one project has already been, so they've had one success before under a company called AUEX, uh, and, um, and it's the same management now. They have a number of projects that are looking very good, very, very promising indeed. They have several big mining companies that are spending uh, substantial amounts of money to earn in to those various projects. One, a Trinity Silver project that they have uh, is looking very good. It doesn't look like it will be the largest 
project, but it, it is looking very it is looking more and more like it could be a viable, relatively small but but good uh, low cost silver producer. Uh, we don't know that for sure yet, but the project is moving along. The main thing I'd like to emphasize with this company is that it is um, <clears throat> that it is selling at a fraction. Uh, we I put it initially on my newsletter at a dollar seventy-two in uh, December of two thousand ten. The stock is at sixty-five cents right now. Thirty million shares outstanding, giving it a market cap of only of about twenty million dollars, which is really low. They do have about eight point four million in working capital, so they've got uh, they've got uh, a fair amount of cash on the books, and, and more importantly is that they are using other people's money to develop these projects, and they will retain and keep you know, many times 30 40 50% uh, of a project. They have some projects that they are going to develop a little bit further along themselves because they think they have the potential to establish uh, better prospects and then have a major come in and then maybe uh, keep 49% instead of 30% uh, if they can advance them. And there's there's several uh, several projects. I mean, I think they have something like 30 projects altogether. And companies like Eldorado Gold, Agneagle Eagle, um, Sumitomo, Newmont Mining, they're the kind of partners they have. Then they have a several junior uh, partners as well. Uh, and the, the thing about the juniors is that many times they'll go in and spend some money and then not have the ability to raise capital in this, in this horrible market. And so they have to return the project back to, uh, back to Renaissance. And Renaissance gets all the data, all the information that was spent, the millions of dollars that were spent to gather that data becomes theirs. And then, uh, the many times they can probably attract a different, uh, maybe a better funded pro- uh, partner in the future. So the project generator model is really probably the best model there is and um, you know uh, this is a company with with so many good targets and not only in Nevada but they also have some in Spain and Argentina as well so uh, uh, Renaissance Gold uh, Inc TSX REN is a symbol and you can buy it in the United States under the symbol RNSGF it was my stock pick of the week last week uh, and I will be looking forward to talking to my subscribers uh, passing on some more information uh, many exciting companies, and I tell you, I am as excited as I've been in quite a while, uh, especially after listening to Rick Rule's uh, views on the market. I think he's right. Rick has been an extremely successful investor, and it always pays. Uh, it always pays. It's always a good thing to pay attention to people like Rick Rule, who uh, who really have had a successful track record. We do have to go to a break, and I'll be back with some closing thoughts on today's show, and also. Um, some words about next week's guest. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I want to give you some thoughts from today's show. I really, really, really did enjoy uh, Rick Rule. Uh, He's always delightful. Also um, had a a good discussion with Bill Lagner. Unfortunately, uh, we had some technical difficulties, and I had, honestly, towards the end, had some difficulty listening to Bill. But Bill has had a very successful, um, he and his partner, Kevin Duffy, who uh, manage a hedge fund have been very successful in uh, in horrible down markets and and since they both uh, believe that we are still in a secular bear market, uh, I think their views on the markets uh, are very very important as well. Uh, I think Rick's views on the uh, uh, on the resource market are very important too because they uh, you know you can't just say all markets are the same in in terms of even though it seems to be. These days, it's risk on, risk off. The markets seem to move together no matter what markets you're talking about. If you're looking at enterprise value, if you're looking at companies and their intrinsic value, what they, uh, you know, if, if they can grow organically, if they can build their business without having to go back and borrow a lot of money or raise equity, then that's a very important uh, thing to consider. As I look at the uh, what we call in my newsletter my Progress A1 companies, these are companies that do produce gold or silver in many cases, there's a lot to be very excited about. I'm looking at some of the headlines from last week. Uh, Great Panther Silver uh, reported its uh, second quarter production results, and they're very, very strong. Uh, that's a company that's earning a nice profit, doing very well with its Mexican uh, silver mine uh, at Guanajuato, and there's another one uh, as well, uh, Topia, uh, that they're doing very well there. Timmins Gold. Uh, reached record production, 23,203 uh, ounces of gold and 14,453 ounces of silver during Q2. Uh, it's, uh, Arizon Mines is, is a really, I think, a sleeper. It's a company in Quebec that's doing extremely well, uh, and it's also in, um, uh, it's also has several junior partners that have some exciting projects. I look for that company to grow. Uh, very nicely uh, in in the um, in the months and, and years ahead. Sandgold has had some issues, uh, some difficulties, but I do think Sandgold uh, they did produce 18,241 ounces, but they had another 10,000 ounces uh, that were sitting on the surface. They uh, they had some difficulties with their mill. Uh, that's being worked out. I still like Sandgold very much. Um, no doubt that that company has some of the largest, highest grade. Uh, gold in North America, and I think a company is still, I'm expecting some big and very, very encouraging things from Dynacor Gold Mines uh, in Peru is also a favorite of mine, a company that's producing a good amount of cash flow relative to their share price, which last time I looked was around 50 cents. Petakilia is another one. That happens to be Chen Lin's favorite gold stock or one of his favorite gold stocks right now, as is Oceana Gold. There's just lots and lots of good, strong companies. Sandstorm was my number one pick this year. Love Sandstorm. They're on a growth curve. Earnings growing very rapidly. So while the market isn't paying attention, while the market isn't willing willing to pay much for these companies, if their growth is growing, their cash flows are growing, and their um, and their prospects going forward are bright, 
then I think it's time to take a serious look. Well, we are out of time, uh, unfortunately. I uh, thank you all for listening. I want to thank our I uh, want to thank our sponsors uh, as well uh, for making this show economically viable. I want to thank Casey Trump, my producer, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, uh, for making this show logistically possible. Next week, we do have uh, Mr. Zing- Professor Zingales is coming back, and Doug Rowe of the Tocqueville Fund will talk about gold stocks. So we hope to see from you next week. Until next, until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada with a land-based